This morning in the question period, someone asked about concentration and how it fits into the practice that we're doing. And um, Greg talked quite a bit about continuity and how important continuity is in our mindfulness practice and that actually the continuity, that the moment-to-moment mindfulness is really the ground out of which concentration can develop. There's another exploration that we can make around concentration. It's got a kind of a different approach to it. And that is to look at what gets in the way of concentration and to explore letting go, letting go of what gets in the way. Actually, on this retreat that I just finished this past month, my practice was almost entirely letting go. Whenever there was any suffering, any holding, any clinging, the practice was recognize it and not so much do the act, try to do the activity of letting go, which can happen at times, but more often I think the, uh, the letting go happens as a result of the clear seeing. And as the mind would see suffering, see holding, see clinging and let go, let go, let go, let go, let go, the mind became very concentrated. This uh, really gave me such a beautiful new perspective on concentration. It's not about doing, it's not about holding, it's really about letting go. Some of the key states that happen to be in the way of concentration are uh, some of the main forms of suffering, of dukkha. And these are termed the hindrances. Sense desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse, and doubt. Of these kind of states, of these hindrances, the Buddha suggests that we abandon them. That's the term, the term, the translation of the term, the term in Pali, pajahati. Abandon these states. Abandon the defilements. Abandon the kalesa. Abandon the hindrances. And while abandoning is a translation of this Pali term, I found it interesting to reflect on what that word means in English and how that word can perhaps help us have a little bit of an understanding of what we're doing here. My understanding of the way this word is used is not so much, not necessarily the the kind of abandonment that we think of in terms of um, a parent abandoning a child. 
but rather in the sense of, like sometimes we talk about abandoning a a car that dies by the side of the road. Um, We abandon things when they're no longer useful to us. And we understand that they no longer have value. Another way this uh, term is used, I checked in the dictionary today, is um, that we abandon when we understand there is danger, such as abandoning ship. And so likewise, we can begin to understand the, the danger of these hindrances. And with understanding we naturally begin to let go. And so the letting go of these states, the letting go, the abandoning, isn't as much something that we do consciously or that, the, you know, we might think of pushing away. But rather, the abandoning comes from the understanding that these things are not valuable, that these things are not useful. In fact, they can be harmful to us. So there's a relationship in terms of abandoning, in terms of abandoning the hindrance. There's a relationship to wisdom. We need to understand why these things are not valuable, why these states of sense, desire, ill will sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse and doubt, why they are not useful, why they are in the way. We need to understand that. And the understanding allows the mind to let them go. It's the understanding, the wisdom, that's the key. And to understand something, we need to study it. We need to get to know it. This is related to what the Buddha says in terms of the first noble truth, the truth of dukkha. Guy, I believe, is going to talk about the four noble truths tomorrow. The four noble truths, the truth of dukkha, the truth of the cause of dukkha, the truth of of the cessation of dukkha and the truth of the path leading to the cessation of dukkha. Each of these truths has a, an action associated with it. The Buddha suggests that we understand dukkha, that we let go of the cause of dukkha, that we realize the release and that we cultivate the path. And so this understanding of dukkha I look at this as being really a huge part of our practice. The understanding is what frees us. So the hindrances, these states, these challenging states, these covering is another translation of the term that's translated often as hindrances, nivarana, covering, things that cloud our mind. 
that are in the way of the settling into concentration, this gathering of the mind into non-distraction, unification of mind. An image comes to mind around settling for me. And that's the image of um, scooping up a jar of water from a turbid stream. You scoop up this jar of water. When I was a kid, I used to live in a, a place where there was a stream in the back, and we would always go gathering rocks and collecting water and looking for tadpoles and stuff. Scooping up that water from the stream was often cloudy because of all the mud and the sediment that was in there. And one of the most effective ways, or for a child, the most effective way to let that water clear is to set it down. Set it on the shelf. Let the uh, sediment settle on its own. You know, if you're running around with the jar, picking it up, shaking it, looking at it, is it going to clear? Can I see in it yet? Can I see if there's any tadpoles in it yet? If we're shaking it up and looking at it, it's not going to clear. But if we set the jar down on the shelf and just leave it alone, the mud will settle. So in a kind of a similar way, I, this analogy for me, um, we can support the settling of our minds by not stirring them up, by kind of leaving alone the stirring activity of thoughts and thinking, leaving alone the stirring activity of agendas, of uh, confused or frustrated or uh, attitudes of wanting in the mind. All of these things are, there's a kind of like taking the jar and shaking it up. And so one way to consider this possibility of settling our minds is to see if we can bring our minds into this attitude of simply observing and allowing our experience. non-resistance to the hindrances, but also uh, non-cooperation with the hindrances either. It's not like we're giving in to them, but we are uh, stepping back, kind of stepping back and observing. This kind of non-resistant, non-judgmental, almost impartial observer is a way that the agitated qualities of these hindrances can begin to settle on their own. And we learn a tremendous amount about our minds as we watch them. So we begin to gain this understanding that I was talking about. It's the understanding that frees, the understanding of how these, both how these um, Hindrances are kind of put together in our minds, the way that sense desire works in our minds, the way we go after things that are pleasant and 
want to push things away that are unpleasant in the case of ill will, the way their minds get confused about things. So kind of understanding the the patterns in our mind that lead to these states arising, that's one side of the understanding. The other side of the understanding is the... um, the understanding that these states, which very often, in particular in the case of sense, desire, and ill will, the mind seems to think acting on those is going to somehow make us happy. So it begins to unveil the deluded nature of that, and it unveils the fact that these states actually in themselves, in the experience of them in themselves, are very far from happiness. We think, we act on sense desire thinking it will make us happy. But in the very moment of having that sense desire, we are very far from happiness. And so the mindfulness begins to show us this. It shows us the suffering nature of these states in and of themselves. And this is wisdom. It doesn't feel very good <laughs> to see this. <laughs> you know, I yeah, I mean, you know, hanging out with dukkha <laughs> doesn't feel very good. But sometimes that's exactly the medicine our minds need in order to understand. And in that understanding, in the seeing of that, in the seeing of that uh, dukkha of these hindrances, the mind itself begins to understand how to let go of it. And so that abandoning begins to happen. In a way, I think the abandoning is the fruit of the understanding. The abandoning is the fruit of our practice. So we might think that looking at hindrances, observing hindrances, you know, if we're to abandon them, how can observing them actually, you know, be of any value? I mean, I know that this was, this certainly rose in my mind. One of the very early things I read about Buddhist practice was if something is difficult, like if you're angry about something, then see if you can notice the state of anger itself rather than acting on it. Just observe the fact that you're angry. And I read that. And I thought, how's that going to help? You know, what good is that going to do? But I was pretty much at the bottom of my barrel at that point. So it's like, well, okay, I'm going to give this a try. And actually, to my surprise, as I think most of you know, that action of turning towards letting go of the thing that we're frustrated about, angry about, wanting, and turning towards the feeling itself. It's a huge shift. And that very shift essentially changes the hindrances from being something that are in the way of our practice to being the very deepening of our practice, to being the ground of understanding out of which our practice unfolds. And so the hindrances in this shift from focusing outwards on the thing we think is bothering us to looking at the state itself, the hindrances themselves become our path. They become our gateway to freedom. 
This is, this is, this is true. This is completely true. I remember so many times in retreats, especially long ones, I would be caught in something over and over again, self-hatred, loneliness, depression, despair. And some part of my mind, even though I'd been through this many times, you know, some part of my mind would say, yeah, the teachers say that you know, this is the practice when it's happening, but really I know that the, the real practice is not going to unfold until this goes away. You know, this, this self-hatred, this is the problem, and it's, you know, the practice is not going to... I'm not going to get to those bliss states until the self-hatred goes away. That seems obvious. So the, um, you know, there was that, that view, that belief. And in a way, a little bit of a repression of those states is like, oh, maybe I can just hold them at bay long enough to get concentrated, and then maybe I won't have to worry about that self-hatred. When I finally surrendered... And, okay, this three-month course, this is my self-hatred retreat. This is the retreat where I really get to look at self-hatred. When I finally surrendered, the understanding, the learning that happened, and the, the, uh, the insights that happened out of that very exploration of a hindrance, of something so difficult, a state so difficult, right in the midst of that, exploring a state like self-hatred. Deep insight, deep understanding into impermanence, unreliability, not self. So these hindrances themselves are the path when they are present. It's not in the way. It's actually the very thing that will allow your practice to deepen in that moment, meeting it, turning towards it. So in a way we could say that when we are mindful of these states, these hindrances, when we are aware with this non-judgmental, mindful perspective of these states of the hindrances, they are no longer hindrances. They are simply any object. They are any like any experience. As Greg was saying, anything. It doesn't matter what we pay attention to. It doesn't matter where we are cultivating that continuity of mindfulness. If we are aware of those states, they are that very process of awareness of those hindrances is contributing to that continuity. And we are on the path. It may not be pleasant. Get used to that. (laughs) Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant. (laughs) With all the hindrances, I think the basic exploration is to simply observe, allow, turn towards... And yet, I think it is helpful to highlight some ways to work with each of them because they have, they each have their own ways of hooking us into their orbit. So I'll take a little bit of time to speak about each of these. 
since there's five of them, you know, it's not going to be very long (laughs) for each one, but, you know, just to get a little bit of a flavor of different ways to explore each of these, some of the, the, the different ways they tend to hook us. So sense desire, the desire to have pleasant experience. Why is this a problem? Why is this a hindrance? How does this get in our way? One of the ways that it kind of gets in our way is that essentially we are um, hooked when we're driven by sense desire, when we want that pleasant experience, we are essentially buying into a delusion that having pleasant experience is the way to happiness. And in buying into that belief that having pleasant experience is the way to happiness, we end up in a kind of a, a never-ending cycle of having to get the next pleasant thing because pleasant things don't last very long. And so we're kind of endlessly agitated trying to find the next moment of pleasant. And in the, mo- in the moment, wanting the pleasant, even if it's only a few seconds away, we are not in the present moment. So we are pulled out of the present moment, inherently agitated, stirring that muddy jar of water, not settled because we are leaning forward, looking for something else, something other than what's actually here. The texts offer analogies for each of these hindrances and they're related to a bowl of water. Looking, you know, if you had a bowl of water and you were looking into it, the analogy is about seeing your reflection. Can you see clearly the reflection? And um, the sense-desire analogy is when there is a lot of dye, colored colors. Somebody's put drops of dye in the water. And what happens is that we get enchanted by the colors. Oh, aren't those pretty? You know, so we, we don't, we can't see the reflection clearly because we're enchanted by the colors. And in a similar way, we can't see clearly with sense desire because we are enchanted by the promise of a hit of pleasant experience. And so part of the obscuration that happens there is that we do not see the unpleasantness of the wanting itself. And we are so enchanted by the idea of that moment of happiness that we're going to get, or a few moments of happiness. We've bought into that delusion of sense desire that that's going to make me happy. And we're missing the fact that we're actually suffering in this moment. We're, we're not cultivating that sense of well-being in this moment. So, so many kinds of things that we want, you know, 
A lot of it is around comfort and pleasant experience, you know, having food that we like, drinks that we like, nice comfortable clothes and nice bed and pleasant smells and pleasant sights. Those kinds of things are kinds of, some of the kinds of things we want. Those are the more obvious things. We also want to satisfy our curiosity. We want to look at people. We want to uh, see, you know, especially on retreat, this this can become highlighted. You know, we're, we're inclining to not let our gaze wander on retreat often. And I found that to be a very interesting exploration because just not letting my gaze up, I found how much wanting there was about looking at people. You know, how much how much desire was there about wanting to see who was in the room with me, who was walking next to me. So the exploration here, non-resistance to sense desire, doesn't mean giving in to the desire. It means, you know, the, the exploration again is, let, see if you can let go of the thing you're interested in having and turn towards the experience of desire, the experience of wanting itself. What does wanting feel like? So that's that shift turning towards the wanting. So non-resistance, not trying to stop the wanting, but also having a completely different relationship to it. This is a shift of attitude around the wanting. We shift from believing it, its necessity, buying into the delusion of wanting that having that thing will make me happy, to turning towards this is what wanting feels like. Often there's unpleasant experience when we actually turn towards wanting and it feels like a pull, a magnet, you know, just like the sense of gotta have that, gotta, gotta do that, gotta feel that, gotta have, you know. So there's this kind of magnetic pull, unpleasant feeling, inherently a feeling of dissatisfaction. That's what wanting is about. You know, as soon as there's wanting, there's dissatisfaction, and dissatisfaction is not a pleasant experience. Turning towards that feeling of dissatisfaction, of wanting. Watching it without acting on the desire. Here, there's so many opportunities to do this, to get familiar with this state of wanting. It's, it, it'll happen all over the place in ways that are not so threatening, you know, like looking at people while walking. That was, that was a, an exploration for me for weeks on one three-month course, that feeling that wanting of looking at people, feeling how it was like the tractor beam from Star Trek, you know, wanting to, wanting to look at people, feeling that pull watching it, then watching it spring into being, you know, finding a place where I could walk where there weren't too many people and then seeing that wanting spring into being as soon as somebody appeared in my field of vision. Feeling it, feeling it, watching it, not following through and looking, but feeling the wanting and then see it disappear, just vanish when that person moved out of sight. Feeling the wanting vanish like that feels like being released from a vice grip. That moment of seeing the release from wanting is such a clear demonstration of the freedom that comes from letting go. The ease, the peace that comes when the mind has let go of clinging. 
There's all kinds of opportunities to, to play with this. I, I really think of practice as a big sandbox, you know. Let's try this thing. Let's try that thing. Let's play. Let's play with observing these states. You know, play with not going back if there's a dessert some night. Play with not going back for seconds and watch your mind. It's something you want. Just play with it. We need some discernment with looking at sense desire to recognize the distinction between allowing the feeling of desire and indulging the feeling. Sometimes the, the, the desire can move into fantasy of having that thing. And um, the fantasy is pleasant and it will mask again, it will mask that sense of dissatisfaction. And so we need to, to be honest with ourselves when we are actually looking at the desire and when it kind of slips into that indulging. And we also need to um, be compassionate with ourselves. You know, sometimes our mindfulness isn't quite strong enough to meet the hindrances. Sometimes it, it, you know, and this is true for any of the hindrances. And in the case of sense desire, sometimes the mindfulness, there's something that we have such a pull towards, some, some habitual desire that we have such a pull towards that when we try to bring mindfulness to it, it's like the, the momentum of the desire is stronger than our ability to meet it. And that mindfulness just gets sucked into the momentum of the desire. And so we also need to be honest with ourselves when we find that it's not so helpful actually to try to relax, observe, allow, sense desire. But when we try to relax, observe, allow, two seconds later we're caught back in that state of desire, maybe it's time to pick some other experience. Not to repress the desire, but also, you know, just kind of set it aside. It's like, yeah, not now. Not now. I'm just going to put my attention over here. I'm going to, you know, put my attention on, I'll open my eyes and pay attention to seeing for a little while. So just putting your attention elsewhere, perhaps something a little bit neutral rather than something pleasant in this case. The second of the hindrances, ill will. This is related to the um, aspect of aversion, not liking things, wanting to get rid of things, wanting to push things away dislike of things, of people, of situations, of experience, of ourselves even. And in this case, we are kind of buying into the delusion, the story that ill will tells us is that happiness will depend on getting rid of this thing, getting rid of this unpleasant thing. And the agitation, the stirring happens with the feeling that we have to get rid of that thing. Again, we're the, the movement to fix, to control, to change. We're pulled out of the experience of the present moment in order to do something. 
to get rid of something. If only I could get rid of this thing, then I'll be happy. It's essentially like we're stirring up that jar of water, trying to take, scoop out little bits of that mud, right? You know, every time we'd stick the spoon in to try to get a little bit of it out, get rid of it, we're just stirring it up more and more. So the wanting to get rid of is just contributing to the agitation. The analogy, the bowl of water analogy, is that that bowl of water is boiling. The heat agitates the water and we can't see clearly the reflection in the water. So again, non-resistance to this state very similar in a way to to sense desire, kind of the flip side of sense desire. Taking the attention away from the thing that we want to get rid of and turning the attention to the feeling of ill will itself. What does it feel like to want to get rid of something? What is that feeling of uh, pushing away like? Turning the attention to the body, often it's really helpful to turn the attention to the body in this experience, seeing if you can let go of thoughts around ill will, likewise with sense desire. Thoughts, they shouldn't have done that, they should, I'd have to have that. Thoughts contribute to the stirring. And so if you can take your attention and put it in the body, it helps to let the thoughts settle so that they're not stirring things up. The, you know, just, what is it like to feel like you don't want something. When we can turn to that, that feeling itself, we see, you know, again, that feeling of of ill will has somehow convinced us that the only way to happiness is to get rid of the thing that we don't want. The delusion of ill will is not going to tell us that if the ill will goes away, it won't be a problem. Likewise with sense desire, very similar with sense desire. You know, the, the delusion of sense desire isn't going to tell us that if the wanting goes away, the problem goes away. The delusion of sense desire, the delusion of ill will is focused on the thing that we want, the experience that we want, the state that we want or want to get rid of. And so, can we turn towards that feeling itself? The state of body. How does it feel? Just the simplicity of what does it feel like to want to get rid of something? It's, it's not so threatening, actually, when we can just be with that feeling. Oh, this is what, this is what wanting to get rid of feels like. This is what hostility, pushing away feels like. Again, as with sense desire with ill will, there are times when the state of ill will, which can take the form of self-hatred, can take the form of rage, really strong forms of, of that aversive state of mind. Sometimes the energy of that ill will is, again, stronger than our ability to meet it. And so when we try to turn our attention towards that anger, that self-hatred, we find ourselves sucked into the story of it again and again and again. 
And so, again, being honest with ourselves about when it's not so helpful to use that relax, observe, allow. Instead, not now. That not now, that setting aside, kind of a skillful ignoring. It's, a, it's, it's um, the way I framed it to myself. It's kind of like I would see something like anger arise and recognize, yeah, not a good time to pay attention to this. And, and the, the, the way I would like have the little conversation in my mind, it's like, yeah, I see you. I see you're like wanting some attention, but you know, this isn't a good time. So, you know, you do your thing. I'm not going to stop you, but I'm going to put my attention on my feet. I'm going to just put my attention on my feet and walk right now. So letting it be, essentially. Not trying to repress it, but also not engaging in it. That whole kind of conversation that I had with myself did get collapsed down to that, just not now. With essentially that light tone. It wasn't not now. It was not now. I'm going to put my attention here. Very, very skillful tool when ill will is strong in that way. Kind of recognizing when we're overwhelmed by that state. The third of the hindrances, sloth and torpor, in my meetings with many of you have mentioned this as being something that's up in these days. Um, pretty, pretty familiar state for the beginning of retreat. Um, sometimes we call it the swamp, you know, the first few days of retreat. just feels like we're trudging through sludge. And in fact, the um, analogy for sloth and torpor, uh, the water analogy, is that there's algae growing on the bowl of water. So, kind of a literal swamp. So, sloth and torpor, uh, a low energy state. It's kind of, you know, it's the states of sleepiness, dullness, fogginess, spaced out, that kind of state of mind. Sometimes actual sleep. So the energy is low, and because the energy is low, it's hard to see clearly. But much of the agitation around this state has to do with the thoughts, something like, I can't pay attention while my mind is this dull. This is a problem. This has to be fixed. So the... the uh, I can't meditate if, I, if, if I'm in this state. How many of you had that, had that belief, had that thought come in your mind, you know, when you are in a state of dullness? Now, I can't meditate in this state. I'd actually like to propose that if you have that thought, if you can be aware that you have this thought, I can't meditate when my mind is this dull, that there's actually enough energy and mindfulness to meet the sleepiness and the dullness, to actually be aware of it. 
Now, if you're actually falling asleep, you know, you're not going to have that thought. You're going to be asleep. But if you find yourself thinking that thought, question it. See if you can turn it around and say, I've got enough mindfulness to think that thought. Let's see if I can meet the dullness and sleepiness. Sleepiness is an interesting experience because it's got this quality when we're, we're resisting it, which we often do in meditation. When we're sleepy and we're meditating, we feel like I'm not supposed to be sleepy, I'm supposed to be alert. It's when I'm alert that I can see things clearly and that's when insights are going to come, etc. So we have that, you know, those thoughts. So we're resisting the sleepiness. And when we resist the sleepiness, the dullness... You know, those states feel really unpleasant. It doesn't feel very good. We're fighting them. But often, not always, sometimes the thickness of mind itself has an unpleasant quality. But often the resistance to sloth and torpor is the largest part of the unpleasantness of it. And many times I've seen, as soon as the resistance stopped oh, does it feel good? It's a really pleasant experience to be sleepy. That's a little carrot for you. When it feels good, it can be a little bit more fun to try to pay attention to. (laughs) So even just the shift from uh, the resistance to the non-resistance, if you can feel the the sensations and recognize the pleasantness of it, that might be enough to keep you aware enough to be present for the experience itself. On one um, retreat, one of my early retreats, I finally realized that I could, I just couldn't resist the sleepiness, but I found that I could kind of watch it. And during one particular sitting, I, let go, I just completely let go of the resistance to it. And I just watched it. And I, I felt the kind of the sleepiness descend. And just kind of the, the body first got really relaxed. So the body was like, yeah. But there was awareness. But the body was really relaxed. That felt pretty good. The muscles got all soft. The in, inside got all soft. I was like, oh, that's pleasant. That's really pleasant. So noticing the pleasantness of that and then watching the mind go into these like really pleasant, like, you know, the the states of just before sleep, the mind goes into these really pleasant kind of wave-like experiences. And then I would fall asleep. (laughs) I was sitting, right? So this woke me up. Okay, I'm awake. Let's do it again. (laughs) Just let the body get all soft and cushy. Let the mind go. And do it again. It was like so much fun. (laughs) It was like better than any Disneyland ride I'd ever been on. You know, it was great. It was really, it was really a, a, a really fun exploration. And something that surprised me as I did this And just, you know, through this exploration, in the period of a 45-minute sitting, my mind began to recognize the state just before I dropped. 
And so the mind knew the moment before I was going to fall asleep. And when it recognized that moment, all I had to do was like straighten my spine a little bit. There'd be a little rush of energy. Then I could let go and do it all again. And so that entire sitting was an exploration of mindfulness of sleepiness, mindfulness of that hindrance. And yet it wasn't hindering the mindfulness. It wasn't hindering the continuity. It wasn't hindering the cultivation of concentration. In fact, it was the very support for that cultivation. I really encourage you to have fun <laughs> with your hindrances. You know, it's kind of amazing. I mean, we think, we think there are certain states that we cannot be mindful of. And if there's any state that you think that about, I can't be mindful when I'm spaced out. I can't be mindful when I'm X. Question it. I started to question that and got interested in how might it be possible to be mindful of spacing out and discovered that it is possible to be mindful of spacing out. So looking at this, looking at this as a possibility for awakening up. Now again, there are times to use the antidotes when if you try to be mindful of sleepiness, you fall asleep and you're out until the bell rings. You know. So if you're finding that level of sleepiness, and it's, you know, again, it takes some honesty, it takes some willingness to look at what's happening and and recognize, okay, yeah, mindfulness right now for sleepiness doesn't seem to be working. I would try mindfulness first and see what happens. And if you see that it, you know, you end up lost in the sleepiness or asleep for long stretches of time, then use some of the antidotes. Stand up, open your eyes, look at light. Do some walking meditation. Walk backwards. That's a great antidote to sleepiness. My teacher in Burma, Sayada Ujjanaka, taught me that one. Walk backwards. It's amazing how it makes the mind more alert. The fourth of these is restlessness and remorse. This is kind of that... It's got, it's got both bodily side, uh, this, this hindrance has both a bodily side to it and a mental side to it. Sometimes the bodily side is just the restlessness of body, you know, just like feeling like jumping beans under your skin or like restless leg syndrome, like you just cannot sit still. It's like, you know, just the feeling of your body just going to explode. The restlessness of mind is the mind feeling like it can't settle, like the mind is so jumpy. The analogy for the uh, bowl of water is that the water is rippled by the wind. So with physical restlessness, that kind of jumping being quality, really helpful to have, I mean, there's different ways to pay attention to something. And often we have a, a kind of a focus quality to our attention. We, we 
we kind of dive in and look at things closely. With restlessness, it's really helpful to have a really wide open lens. Almost like, let the restlessness get as big as this room. Let the awareness get as big as the room. Let the restlessness get as big as the room. Sounds a little scary to think of it that way, but in a way, when we're trying to contain that physical restlessness in the body, it's like a pressure cooker. It's like you're, you're holding it in this really small space and it's like all oh, this fast energy spark, sparking around. Whereas if it's got a big container, that energy has much more space to uh, be held in. So that sense of having a big container of awareness can be very helpful. With the restless mind, with the spinning in the thoughts, and the mind that feels like it just cannot settle, just you know, jumping from thing to thing to thing, sometimes there's a emotion underneath that. Anxiety, worry. And so we'll talk in a few days a little bit more about working with emotions. But one of the most helpful tools there is turning towards how does that emotion feel in the body. So if you notice restlessness, you might just, you might just check in. Is there, is there something else happening here? Some other emotion going on? Oh yeah, there's worry. What does worry feel like in the body? Again, seeing if you can let go of the thoughts and turn towards the bodily experience. Sometimes this restless mind is kind of, um, you know, the mind is trying to work something out, trying to figure something out, motivated out of this emotion. And sometimes it's the emotion itself kind of like trying to get our attention, like, pay attention to me, something's wrong here, we need to do something about this, hey, you got to fix this. So sometimes the, the uh, restless mind is that emotion trying to get our attention. And when we actually turn to that emotion itself, the emotion goes, oh, whew, thank goodness you're paying attention to me. And it stops spinning out so much. So there's, there's a lot that we can say about restlessness again, but there's not so much time this evening. But... Um, really encourage the broader attention for a restless mind. Restlessness is a very core hindrance. It's said that restlessness is one of the last hindrances to go before we get enlightened. So it's going to be with us for a long time. It's worth getting familiar with it, beginning to understand it, learning about it. The learning about it will allow the grosser forms, the larger forms, to begin to release and to settle. And then we start working with subtler forms and subtler forms and subtler forms. The, 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 the restlessness is a, it's embedded very deeply into our minds. Using antidotes for hindrances, you know, again, if it feels like the the mindfulness just makes it explode. Sometimes with, uh, with restlessness, if we turn towards restlessness, it's like a positive feedback loop and it gets like a screaming restlessness in our experience. 
might be helpful then take a walk, go outside, open your eyes, be in nature. Just take your attention off the restlessness itself and put yourself in a, in a more spacious container. Allow for a spacious mind. The fifth of the hindrances is doubt. So many different kinds of doubt in our practice. There's doubt in ourselves is probably the biggest one that we meet. We also doubt the teachers. We doubt the teachings. You know, the Buddha, he lived 2,600 years ago. What, What on earth does he know about the kinds of suffering I'm experiencing here and now? It does happen to turn out that the minds haven't changed too much. <laughs> so the, the tools that he offers us are completely applicable to our situation. So the doubt, you know, the doubt comes up. Doubt is, um, the, the analogy for doubt is the water is clouded by mud so that we can't see. It often manifests as a kind of a wavering, a vacillation, um, in in terms of our practice, sometimes we have doubt in what practice should I do right now? You know, should I do metta right now? Or should I do, you know, love, you know, should I do focus on the breathing right now? Or maybe I should go take a walk? Or oh, maybe I should do mindless gazing, useless gazing practice, and have a cup of tea and sit. And we're in this kind of, you know, what should I do? What what practice should I do? Kind of mentality. The mind is kind of walking two steps down the path of one practice. Maybe, well, let's do let's do loving kindness. May I be happy? Oh no, no, let's do anapanasati. Breathe in. Oh, let's take a walk. Oh. <laughs> so so we end up, you know, taking only a few steps this way, then coming back and taking a few steps that way. And so the doubt can manifest as a kind of vacillation. And the analogy of being lost in the desert. You know, we take a few steps this way. Maybe that's the way I'm supposed to go. No, no, that's not right. Let me, let me go this way. No, no, that's not right. Let me go this way. So doubt has that vacillating quality to it. So not being able to decide what to do, the mind can spin in what can sound like very logical, wise arguments discussions in our mind. And yet, those very thoughts are keeping us from being here in the present moment. And so one of the most important things, one of the most important tools with doubt is to get familiar with the stories of doubt. I can't do this. What good is this? I should do another practice. What do these teachers know? Get familiar with the stories around doubt. When you recognize the mind caught in a story of doubt, there's hope. Then we can start to pay attention to it. Then we can turn towards the experience of doubt. What does doubt feel like? Often there is some kind of underlying emotion with doubt as well. I find often related to fear, some kind of vulnerability, a feeling of inadequacy, a fear of failure, a fear of the unknown. Often these kinds of um, emotions will lead us to doubt. But look for yourself. 
what kind, when you recognize doubt, when you recognize, oh, this is doubt. I remember on one retreat, I was in a state of doubt. I was doing walking meditation in the courtyard out here when it hit me, oh, this is doubt. That's what's happening here. My mind had gone off into this, I shouldn't be here. I should, I should, you know, this is, this practice isn't for me. I'm obviously not worthy of this practice. And at some point it's like, oh, oh, this is doubt. Okay. What does doubt feel like? And I turn towards my experience. It's like, what's here? It's like, okay, doubt is here. And what's here? And the feeling, you know, was a surprise to me. But the feeling was grief. That was the feeling. And when I felt the grief, the whole thing collapsed within, you know, a few minutes. And I was just back in the practice. Doubt feeds on non-mindfulness. When the mind is aware of what's happening in the present moment, doubt cannot get a foothold. The antidote to doubt is attention in the present moment. And so if you can recognize this is doubt, that very recognition is the beginning of doubt falling apart. Sometimes our doubt is intellectual. You know, we, we want to understand how things work, how the practice works, whether it will work, um, whether it's worth doing this practice versus that practice. And so we think about it rather than actually doing it. There's a term that the, that's applied to the Dhamma, ehipasiko. It means come and see, try it. Instead of thinking about whether something's going to work, run the experiment, try it and see. For me, this has been a, a great antidote to that kind of doubt, that kind of intellectual doubt. Like that question I had at the very beginning, you know, when I read that book and it said, pay attention to your anger. It's like, well, what good's that going to do? That was doubt. But as I said, because I had hit bottom, it's like, well, I'm willing to try it and see. Somebody says it's useful. Maybe it's helpful. So there's the willingness to run the experiment, willing to try, come and see. That willingness is the step of faith that also is the antidote to doubt. And so, I hope that you really have gotten a sense of the possibility of working with the hindrances, not simply because we need to get rid of them in order to get to the real practice, but that this is our practice and the depth of what we can learn in the exploration of it. How much we learn about our hearts and minds in this exploration and actually how much freedom is possible through that exploration. Let's sit together for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.